Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in West London with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us all the way from Laurel Canyon is the legendary Penelope Spheris. Hello, Penelope. Hello, Penelope. Hello, 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 Barney. (laughs) (laughs) What's up? We're going to talk in this episode about our guest's stellar career as a filmmaker and specifically about her first two Decline of Western Civilization documentaries, as well as the hugely successful Wayne's World and plenty more besides. Penelope, by any measure, you have had an extraordinary and very traumatic life, ruthless at best, shockingly violent at worst in terms of your childhood and adolescence. Your father was murdered in Alabama. Your brother was killed in a car crash and your daughter's father died of an overdose. How does one carry such a heavy load? Well, gosh, why don't you just start with the tough stuff first, (laughs) Barney? Uh, Okay. I think it, Well, I know it was very difficult dealing with such loss. I'm not an especially religious person, but somebody said once that God never gives you anything you can't handle. I've handled it. I do think I suffer from PTSD from it, especially from the younger ones. You know, when you have such trauma at age seven and your father is murdered, it sticks with you all your life, you know? So, yeah, I I live every day day of my life in fear that something terrible is going to happen. So that's how I handled it. Yeah. And a lot of your your childhood was spent in the South. I remember when I interviewed you in the 90s, you were just making or you just finishing the Beverly Hillbillies. So there was obviously a, a lot of kind of Southern stuff there in terms of like Southern people coming to Los Angeles. I remember we we talked about that. Tell us about your memories of moving to Southern California as a kid. Well, it was sort of like escaping from jail. You know, I was living in Arkansas, Hot Springs, Arkansas, after my father died. And my mom decided, well, she, my mom was told, in all, my mother was married nine times. Okay. So I had seven stepfathers. The first one being an army dude that was getting restationed to Southern California. So that's why we moved out here, you know, and that was probably when I was around, I don't know, in nine, 10 years old, something like that. Yeah. And your brother, I mean, it's always interesting to me, given, you know, your incredible punk rock film, that your brother was in a sense, part of the whole kind of mellow singer-songwriter thing, wasn't he, in Southern California? He, he, he was an artist on Columbia Records. His first album came out in 72, and I know he was like pals with Jackson Brown. Do you have memories of that, and did you meet the kind of people that Jimmy was, was making records with? Oh, yeah. Um, he was good friends with Joni Mitchell, too, here in Laurel Canyon, and Jackson, like we'd be, we lived in this really tiny, like 800 square foot tract home in Westminster. And Jackson Brown lived out in that area as well. And Jackson would just like walk in the bedroom one day and they would sit there and strum acoustic together, you know? So 
Yeah, I mean, I knew I knew his friends. He was actually the the way my brother got his first guitar was that I went to Tijuana with my my friend Linda Wickhart from high school, and we bought a guitar off a street vendor, and I brought it home, and I couldn't play it, and Jimmy picked it up, and it was like a miracle from God. It's like what the hell this guy can, and he could play any instrument without even having a lesson. It was really pretty amazing. Yeah. Obviously, he made a number of albums and then very tragically was was killed in a car crash in 84, I think it was. I mean, by that time, you were already making films. You had started making... What was What was the kind of inception of that? When did you know that you might be interested in being in the film business in some capacity or other? Well, that's a complicated question because... You know, back in those days, women never dared say they wanted to be a director. And mm. it kind of even didn't occur to me until I got out of, of film school at UCLA. You know, women in film back then, especially, you know, here in the United States, a little bit different in Europe, but we were either going to be script supervisors or assistant editors, not first editors, assistant editors, mm -hmm. and, you know, have those kind of jobs on movie sets. So I stayed in school way longer than a normal person would because I had access to the film equipment in the tech office. I was the first woman at UCLA that they allowed to work in the tech office, where, which is where they dish out the equipment to the students because they didn't think women could pick up the equipment. And I picked it up until I was eight months pregnant. Right. So screw them, huh? <laughs> right, right, right. And you, you had to, you know, adopt a similarly tough approach, as I understand it, when you started doing things with Albert Brooks and Lorne Michaels and the whole, when you were involved with Saturday Night Live. Once again, I mean, I think you've said in interviews, there was no way they were going to let you direct anything there because you were a woman. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of where you got your... Your break, is that fair to say, at Saturday Night Live, and um, particularly with Albert Brooks? <laughs> you call it a break? Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I actually learned, really, the technical and, you know, aspects, and I loved film history in school. You know, I wasn't – all right, let's put it this way. I really learned how to make movies and shoot music when I started a company called Rock and Reel. And I did that because a guy named Peter Philbin that worked at CBS Records was a friend of mine. And he called me up and he goes, hey, um, you want to make a music video? And I didn't know what that was. And nobody did, you know. And they just figured out you don't have to send the whole band around the world. You could just send a little piece of 16 millimeter film. And that was a big breakthrough. I really learned how to shoot music that way. Lauren Michaels called me up one day and said, Penelope, I've got this. <laughs> Couldn't resist. I've got this brilliant comedian, but he won't be a player on the show. He only wants to make little movies and he doesn't know how. So you know how. So would you please teach Albert Brooks how to make movies? So we made little movies for Saturday Night Live. I kept saying to Lauren, could I give you an idea or two and maybe I could make a little movie for the goddamn show. Can I swear on this show? Or of course not? you yes. can. Yes. yes. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. The more the better. 
Oh, dear. Well, don't turn me loose, bub. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway, Lauren, I always would give him, he blames it on everybody else, okay? Well, if the team likes your idea, well, it's not the team, it's him. You know, you can uh, do one of the short films, okay? Never could do one on Saturday Night Live. But after we did six or seven with me uh, telling Albert where to put the damn camera, (laughs) I uh, was uh, blessed with the job of producing Albert's first movie, Real Life. And it was after that that he went on to, you know, make himself a career as, as a director starring in his, in his own film. But he never asked me again to work with him. He used all the crew I brought him. He gave, <laughs> uh, he, got, he got Eric Saarinen to shoot it, you know. And I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm griping and whining a little bit, but that was kind of shitty. And also, I think they just did a, a movie, uh, Rob, who was always Albert's best friend, Rob Reiner? Yes. He directed a doc lately about Albert's career. Guess who was excluded? Ta-da! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, mm. right. Yeah, fuck uh, those guys, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's disappointing to hear. I was just going to ask where music started coming into it for you. Because obviously, you know, I mean, you were making music films. Was that because you were going to see bands? Were you into music as a kid? Or was it just that it was an opportunity that presented itself? Oh, honestly, Jasper, I was so into music as a kid. Because as Barney mentioned, I had a really, really, really crappy childhood with Mm. seven drunk stepfathers and a drunk mother. And so whenever times got tough, I would go and listen to rock and roll. You know, I would go to clubs and we were down in Orange County. I, I got I got to be friends with Dick Dale and Deltones. You know, oh, they wow. would perform. And they would perform surf music at the Rendezvous Ballroom. <sighs> I was friends with Sepp Donahauer, who had a club called the Cheetah. You ever heard of the Cheetah? Yeah, yeah. of course. Cool. Oh, really? Okay, we've cool. Got, we've probably got 50 live reviews on Rock's Back pages of gigs that took place at the Cheetah. Really? Something like okay. that. Yeah. Well, see, you know all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> so I saw Blue Cheer there. Wow. Wow. How's your hearing now? Huh? How's your hearing now? <laughs> I was just going to say, you're so funny. I was just going to say, I didn't know, you know, that they were going to be so loud because no band was ever that loud before Mm. or after. Well, maybe ACDC, whatever. Anyway, I was standing right in front of the the big speakers when they started. Yeah, I got my inside scrambled, man. (laughs) Gosh. Is that where your love of heavy metal began? I think so. Yeah. That was the day. Wow. Yeah. And I remember it also, which I was so young and innocent that I was waiting in line. Uh, this is kind of nasty if it's okay, but I was waiting in line to get in to that gig. I remember. And some guy came up to me and whispered in my ear, would you give me head? And I thought, what does Jesus. that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it meant. And I'm like, I hope I you didn't know. say yes on the basis of not knowing <laughs> I didn't what say it yes. meant. Yeah. No. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> oh wow. 
that all happened. Yeah. Right. Gosh. I wanted to mention that since Jasper mentioned the, um, the like music and videos and stuff, he and I were driving back from uh, the countryside. We had a business trip on Friday and we we're driving back listening to the Doobie Brothers Captain and Me album. And oh, I think Brothers? I'm right in saying, yeah, you did, you did, did a video for them. Is that, is that, have I got that right? You sure do. I swear, you know everything, Barney. I have to admit, yes, I did for Warner Brothers Records a video for the Doobie Brothers. And I remember I really didn't like the song. I didn't like the band to start with. They really weren't my style. Mm -hmm. You know, you were right about my brother. He was more the kind of groovy, folky thing. Yes. And I was more the the hard rock thing. Doesn't mean we didn't love each other deeply. But yeah, this guy, Adam Summers at Warner Brothers Records calls me up and says, will you go up? I think San Francisco, San Jose, I don't know where the hell they were, but I went to San Jose. There. I think they were from San Jose. Oh, oh, is that? See, of course you would know. That's my, my memory. Yeah. I saw them in 73. Anyway, you, yeah, you, you want to see them. Yeah. That was about the when I shot, that was about when I filmed them. Okay. Was it, was it like, it wasn't like listen to the music or, or long train no, running. No, Dirty or Water. Dirty water. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't like the song. Oh, da, 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 dirty water. Oh, God. And <laughs> <laughs> we quite like them. We like that album anyway. It's good driving music, as we as we discovered on Friday. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. They weren't very nice to me. And when I got there, uh, some, was it somebody's house or something? And I was supposed to film him in a makeshift studio they had. And they were all outside playing basketball. And I'm waiting with my crew. And they wouldn't come in and do the shoot. They were just playing basketball outside. It was kind of rude. But, you know, it wasn't the worst time, actually. Look at me gripe. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I remember one time. There was this gorgeous woman named Juliana Roberts that worked at, what's the name of that company that did all those music videos? You're going to know this, Barney. Back in the day, started with a P. <laughs> it's like there was this company back in the day that did all these music videos, not Paradigm, but I'll think of it in a sec. Anyway, that company, we she brought me into a studio and there were all these long haired dudes sitting there, glam looking things. Juliana says, okay, Penelope's going to direct your video. And they said, oh, well, no, we, we're not going to have a woman direct our video. Uh, oh, yeah. Lordy. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I try to remember the name of the band. I should call Juliana and ask her, but uh, nobody ever heard of them. That's brilliant. That's actually brilliant. If we like jump forward to, you know, 1979, I read this great quote, you're walking down Hollywood Boulevard, you hear this like infernal racket coming out of a club and you walk in and it's the mask club. And tell us if you can like remember to transport yourself back to that moment, your discovery of like hardcore punk rock in Los Angeles. Well, I will say that, there's a couple of things about that intro or question that I have to explain. And that is that the mask itself was run by Brendan Mullen. And I was friends with Brendan a long time before he started the mask. Okay. And I was into that whole punk scene a long time before the mask 
existed. And the mask was underground. So if you walk by, you can't hear anything because it's you have to go down this really skinny little staircase to get to it. So that wasn't my introduction to punk. Okay. Yeah, just for the record. Yeah, sure. So you're 99% now and not 100, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going on the quote I read, which oh, I'm someone, telling you. Someone, someone put a put put words in your mouth or something. It doesn't really matter. Oh, I'm you so, went in. Yeah. You're right. You're right. And and like I said, there's so many urban legends that it, it evolve from the decline movies and I it, I feel like I'm putting out a forest fire here with my bare feet trying to stomp them out you know <laughs> that's what the podcast is all about stomping out urban legends so yeah feel so, free feel but free. then again but then again everybody has a different perspective and perception of what happened when you know so they may remember something that happened that i question whatever what the fuck were we talking about so what was your first exposure yeah, to, to hardcore so, yeah, punk? Yeah, exactly. Then? What was it? How do you get oh. from the, the doobies, the doobies to White Flag? <laughs> yeah, how do you get from the Doobie Brothers to uh, the Germs? Yes, there we go. Okay. We need <laughs> we need you to to supply that that missing link. <laughs> well, I was friends with all these punks, and there were shows happening everywhere, like kind of underground shows that you found out about through flyers because there were no social media or anything. And so I just started going to clubs and I was, my boyfriend at the time was the guy that had the slash magazine and slash records. Yeah. He was an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, uh, it, let's name him. Shall we? Is that Bob Biggs? Yeah. Bob Biggs was an yes. asshole. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> He's dead now, but he's still an asshole. <laughs> he's an asshole in hell. Okay. <laughs> Is the woman bitter? Let's ask ourselves. Uh, no. I have to get over that one, man. That was the worst. Anyway, so I was friends with all these. Yeah. Bob was not a punk. Bob was an um, artist. He was a good artist, you know? And he was... Um, businessman and he was a good businessman although he was rather dishonest uh sometimes and he was a drug dealer okay and so i got an exposure to all of those sort of mm, parts of life through him we went to all the clubs together and watched all the bands and i started i had my music equipment because i was doing the rock and reel videos yes and so i would take the equipment out at night and shoot punk bands. And honestly, the people in the slash office thought I was, they made fun of me for doing it. It's like, what are you doing that for? It's stupid, you know? But that's what punks do. They just put everything down. Fine. I can do so it. it. So even though they were one of the leading like punk labels, they didn't think it was worth documenting this stuff. No, they, mm. they, you know, they kind of, well, maybe they thought I was competing with the magazine. I don't know okay. what the hell they thought, but I did get a vibe like they didn't really support it, you know. So it didn't bother me. I kept going. I remember one day I had seen some really great looking graffiti, a uh, punk rock ad for a show or something on, on a wall outside on Melrose. 
And I said to Bob, do me a favor, man. You drive the car. I got the camera. I'm going to film the graffiti. And he said, no, that's a big waste of my time. Huh. So I got better stories about him, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to quote from, so with the, the, like the feature on the RBP homepage is, is all like about you and decline. And there's a review that Don Waller wrote for New York rocker in September 81. Don was an LA writer. You probably remember anyway. Don so who? Don Waller. Don Waller. So he he just said, there's one thing I just wanted to quote from his review. The spiritual deprivation that Spirus's film exposes makes the L.A. punk scene all too frequently characterized as backdated borrowings from England 77 valid. Deprivation to the point of alienation is deprivation, regardless of its source. It is this sense and the desire to communicate these feelings that is the very heart of rock and roll anytime, anywhere. So just, you know, when we saw this film in the UK, I think it was, we, we started to get rumblings of the fact that there was there was a, kind, a version of punk rock that was taking root in Southern California. And not that it felt like punk was completely dead, but it was, I don't think we expected LA to be a place or all the suburbs of LA to be a place where this very, very exciting new kind of punk rock began to kind of erupt. I remember Mick Farron writing an amazing piece in NME and we started to hear about the germs and black flag and so forth. I think one of the things that is phenomenal about that film, the decline, and it just really is one of the great punk films is it just didn't seem to accord with anyone's idea of what Southern Southern California was about. Is that fair to say, Penelope? So if I heard your reading of the quote correctly, a guy can kiss my ass. (laughs) Okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, he's criticizing the film because punk rock started in England. Is that, is that what I heard? No, I think he's, I don't think he's, Chris, I think he's saying that what's happening in Hollywood at the mask and clubs like that is not, it's not to quote him backdated borrowings from England in 1977. Oh, it's, it's not. A, it's, no, oh, he it's doesn't... about, he's talking okay. about the spiritual deprivation of kind of like suburban kids in California. And, okay. and that's well, why that, this that's music. True. Yeah, that's true. Okay. He doesn't need to kiss my ass. All right. So <laughs> well, he, I'm afraid he's dead too. So Oh, he's dead? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kiss my ass in hell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I always find it fascinating, Barney, that people like to have a geographical claim to a certain type of music. It sort of reminds me of a, a sports mentality. Yay, go Rams! Who gives a fuck where they're from? You know? That's the way I look at it. I mean, look, do, do we argue over where a tree came from? Yeah, eucalyptus came from Australia. Okay, let's argue about that. Sure. I don't care where the music came from. The music is there. Let's appreciate it. And let's not get territorial about it, is the way I look at it. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the punk rock that came out of, you know, out of Southern California and, and Northern California too, is as good, as valid as any punk rock that came out of Britain or New York 
I really do. Yeah. I mean, I think Black Flag made incredible records. X, The Germs. I like The Germs. I mean, Darby, tell us a little about Darby Crash because he was well, kind of like. I'm sorry, you you skipped over X. May I back yeah. up a bit? Yeah, of course. Barney? Because I'll be honest with you, when I did the decline, I filmed the performance versions of whatever bands happened to be playing when I had the equipment. Okay. So do I, I don't really think X is a punk band. I know everybody hangs that label on them. But I agree. If you, list, you agree? I agree. I never thought of them as really as a, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, Black Flag certainly was. And, and Oh yeah. Black Flag and Jerks. and Circle Jerks. I love Circle Jerks. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. But anyway, people always say X is a punk band. Well, they were around during that time. Mm. I happened to film them because I had the equipment. And whether or not they're punks or their music is punk, I disagree with that. And like I said, everybody's got subjective ideas about what is, you know, about the definitions. But their music is so melodic and it's not aggressive. And as a matter of fact, they had great objection ultimately from uh, for 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 me putting them in the film with a rowdy crowd over their song nausea for my title sequence so they said that's not our crowd we we don't we don't claim that rowdy crowd cuz we're more kind of hippy dippy you know folky whatever yeah and do. sort of literary as well they're quite they're pretty literate weren't they i mean x scene was they're a, great was songwriters yeah yeah exactly yeah, they're great they're great they're not punk you know i'll argue all day with you on that actually i won't i got better shit to do <laughs> <laughs> Tell us just briefly about Darby Crash, who who obviously died very young and was kind of like, maybe it's glib to say it, but sort of LA's Sid Vicious, maybe. I mean, kind of, it came across sort of a bit dumb, but he was, but he was <laughs> quite, quite dumb? a bit dumb. Maybe it came across a bit dumb in, in the decline oh. I mean, or just stoned. I mean, he was just kind of out of it, wasn't he? Okay. Well, he operated on a different level, to be honest with you. And I think that was people's attraction to him. He was definitely not dumb. Okay. He was definitely loaded all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I will say he was tuned into something else. Okay. Mm. Like, I know there's a weird example, but you know how now if you're going to load in something on the computer, you get this uh, blue circle that goes around and around and around. Think about the Germs album cover. Sure. That's that blue circle. He saw it coming, man. Okay. Darby. <laughs> <laughs> I think Darby wanted to project the I don't give a shit punk attitude. Yeah. And he did that very, very well. You know, to the point of not giving a shit about living. And that's unfortunate. But I remember Bob Biggs saying to me, I'm thinking about recording the germs. And, of course, we had seen the shows before they got canceled out of every club. And he said, "Uh, you want to go down with me to listen to them in this little garage in West L.A.? So I did go. And he brought Joan Jett along. 
because he thought it would be a good combo to have her produce the album. Mm. Bob was driving. I'm in the passenger seat. Joan Jett is in the back seat, passed out. Some people call it drugs. I'm not going to go there. But when we got <laughs> when we got to that garage and I heard the germs for the first time, it something freaky happened because the garage was so small and the music was so loud and discordant and weird. I'd never heard anything like that before that my brains were kind of blown out and Joan was still passed out. So I don't know what she was doing, but on the way back from that session, I had the deepest sleep of my entire life because my brain just got fried there. You know, anyway, Bob went on to record the germs album historically, you know, and, uh, and Joan Jett did produce it. Well, you know, the lyrics to, uh, Richie Dagger's crime, Joan Jett passed out on the fucking set. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. I had forgotten uh, that. So yeah. I'm, I'm right. going to say, I'm going to say somebody else produced it. But uh, it was, it was a good thing to put a name on it. Right. Because that's what he was doing. Yeah, I told yeah, you okay. he was a good business. Yeah. 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 You know? Got it. Got it. Now, got if it. Joan wants to come and argue with me about whether or not she produced the album, let her know. I don't have time to talk. Anyway, look, suffice to say, Decline of Western Civilization is an extraordinary film. I mean, I haven't seen it for a while. I've seen it a couple of times in the past. I mean, it's, it's just one of the great, I think, music documentaries. A few years go by and you kind of think about this other scene that's, you know, that's sort of fermented in Los Angeles, particularly on the Sunset Strip. And you just get, you talked about blue cheer earlier. <laughs> so... When was the first sort of sense you had that maybe there was a film to be made about the whole culture of of heavy metal and and specifically sort of, you know, glam metal, really, which was in the ascendant at that point? Yeah, you're right, because there was a a transition between the height of the punk time into metal, but that transition, again, was when I had equipment, and uh, (laughs) that was the glam metal era. And the first time I noticed it, I was um, driving on the uh, south side of the street past the Roxy and Rainbow and all, you know, the whiskey, and I noticed that the whole other side of the street was was full of kids that were totally different looking than than the punk kids and you know they were wearing like bandanas on cowboy boots and all their their style and their hair was all fluffed up and blah blah so <laughs> you you know me I pull over and get in the crowd you know I, <laughs> I'm like checking it out and everybody's giving me flyers and shit so I started listening to or going to the sh- to the shows of the, you know, it was a reaction to punk rock in a way. Yes, yes. It was just like, okay, let's just put down everything that punk did and create our own identity. Every generation wants their own identity, you know, as teenagers and, and, and early 20s. They, they want their own ID. 
And so that's what they were doing. And that happened to be when I had the equipment and the people that were helping me pay for it really, really loved the glam aspect of it and wanted me to emphasize that, even though my instinct was to go toward the harder bands. You know, Guns N' Roses was supposed to end the movie and that dick that managed them pulled them out the day before I was supposed to shoot. Right. So I was lucky enough to get Megadeth because I had worked with Megadeth doing uh wake up dead video and other stuff with right. uh, Ro- shocker with Wes Craven and blah, blah. So I knew Megadeth. Right. And then I knew Alice too. And we got all these big names to do the interviews because the essence for me of the decline was to showcase unknown bands, you know? Yes. So I didn't want to have, kiss up there, nor would they have done it. Mm-hmm. I forgot what you asked me, but I'm just rattling on because yeah. the coffee kicked in. Woo! <laughs> Who was the guy in the pool, in the chair in the pool, drinking Jack Daniels with yeah. his mum on the side of the pool? Who was that? That was a brilliant scene. That was just- That's the one everyone, that is sort of the one that everyone who's seen the film remembers more than anything else, really, is so Chris Jack- Holmes. Okay, so Jack, yes, you're correct. Jack Daniels, you must associate with Lemmy. Okay. Right. That's, that's yeah, the yeah. Jack Daniels guy. Chris Holmes in the pool yeah. was swigging vodka. Oh, right. 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 Okay. okay? Yeah, Cause yeah. it was clear. Remember? <laughs> yeah. I was just too uh, riveted by his mum. I find his mum absolutely riveting. Sandy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I knew Chris. Okay. See, I remember my life by movies and boyfriends. I had another shitty boyfriend in the eighties. He was friends with Chris, and they're both like six foot six. You see these guys walking down the street together, they look like the number 11, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, so this guy, whose name I'm not going to mention because he's still trying to get money out of me, um, he uh, – <laughs> so, yeah, I had been over to Chris's house uh, a few times, and I met his mom, Sandy, so that when when – I asked Blackie Lawless from Wasp to if I could interview him in the film, and he said no because uh, he's so cool. And then I asked Chris, and I asked his mom to come along. And when I shot that scene, I thought, God, there's no w- – I, I didn't get it. I did not get an interview. I'm going to have to ask the producers, let's shoot something else because I did not get it. I took Zimmerman, the camera guy, across uh, behind a tree, and I said, "What are we going to do?" It's it, it just I got nothing. Turns out, it's the most memorable scene of. <laughs> <laughs> it's often the way, isn't it? It is often the way. Uh, yeah, I had no idea that it was would work. You know, that's pretty. It is riveting. Yeah, it's beautiful. And lately, you know, uh, God bless Chris because he thought all these years that he didn't get paid. And I know that we paid him. You know, the production team would write a check to whoever we interviewed. And I think he might have drank a little too much to remember he got paid. But anyway, (laughs) I offered recently to pay him again. And I'm talking like in the last couple of months. Okay. uh, Because I didn't like him running around saying I, I didn't pay him. Sure. Not even my job to pay him, but he was blaming me. Anyway, right. for years, decades, 
I communicated with him and asked him if I could pay him again. And he said, like a man, no, I don't need it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, so God bless Chris Holmes. I, I heard he was a little bit sick lately, and I wish him and his wife, Kathy, the best. One of the things that I find extraordinary about the decline films is how honest the portrayal is of what's going on and how you witness all these or you you film all these incredible events that are by turns strange and funny and depressing and all kinds of, you know, they run the whole gamut of life, really. And you manage to portray them in the way that doesn't doesn't judge them and doesn't either put them on a pedestal or throw them in the bin. I mean, what how do you how did you do that? Jasper, thank you for asking that. And for me as a filmmaker, that is my ultimate goal, is to present a situation, interviewee, subject, whatever, in the most non-judgmental way possible. Because I feel that we as filmmakers should not be preaching or trying to impose our own standards on the audience. I like to just show what's going on and let the audience interpret it as they wish. And Mm -hmm. so for you to notice that, I'm thrilled and happy that you brought it up. I just wanted to mention, so there's an interview you gave to Sylvie Simmons of Raw Magazine in September 89, when the second decline film um, has just come out in the UK. And you tell Sylvie, I wanted to shoot a girl band for the film, but by the time I found one to shoot, Vixen, they told me I didn't have enough money to film them. So on the basis of that, we went through our audio archive in search of metal audio. I feel audio like you're going to try to hit me here, but go ahead. Dude. Well, so we, we, we found a tape of, of a Vixen audio interview, also from uh, 1989. And we thought we would just, I'm going to ask Mark to tell us about it. And then we can just talk about like women and metal perhaps after that, because it's kind of interesting what they say. So, so Mark, tell us. Gonna, is, this, is this going to piss me off? No, it's no. not going to piss you off. No, <laughs> but it, funny enough, it does mention the metal years. So Mark, why don't you tell us about the, the first of the two clips and the inter- the whole interview is itself. Yeah, it's, it's with Jan Gardner, who's the lead guitar player, and Roxy Petrucci, who's the drummer. Backstage uh, at some show by Matt Snow, as you say, July 1989, they talk a lot about how they survived the early years uh, as, first of all, Rox's band, Madame X, and then Vixen themselves, the, the, the kind of being on the road, the sort of the whole kind of life. And unless uh, it's in the first clip, it's about, you know, how every band thinks they're going to make it. You see that from the metal years, which where, where 
the director asked all these young bands in Los Angeles the same question, what if you don't make yeah. it? And they all said, I will, of course we're going to make it. Every single one of them. Now, logic tells you they're not all going to make it. There isn't enough room. But that's the right attitude. Yeah, yeah. they got to believe that. Or if they don't have that, then they never will for sure, you know? Really, if you don't believe in yourself, fans aren't. But is it also, isn't it kind of making a real problem for yourself? Because at what point do you give up? You say, it's not happening, some you know, don't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but if you give up, then you'll never make, you'll never make it. you got to give it a shot. I love how defensive they are, really, you know. They, they, they can't bear to admit the possibility that they might not make it. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be fair, I mean, they, they then go on to talk about the difficulty in getting a record deal because, frankly, record companies didn't take a woman, an all-woman rock and roll band, metal band, seriously. You know, it, it, was, it was a real struggle for them. They go on to talk about the place of girl bands in hard rock. Let's have a listen to this, this, this next clip. Have you discerned a kind of distinct difference in the way that you're treated by audience because you're women? Huh? Is, there a, is there a difference or not, do you think? Um, look, I'm trying to picture a guy concert, <laughs> like Ozzy, and, and the way we're treated. You're maybe talking about at, fans, maybe? Maybe yeah. at first, but I think by the end of our show, people forget that when they're, they're just you know either enjoying it or having Head a good time or whatever. I think they're more careful not to hurt anybody in the band because yeah. these are girls. Yeah. You know, if somebody's to rush the stage or something, I haven't seen anybody like pull anybody off or anything weird like that. That they maybe want to touch or something, but I think they're more careful because there's girls up front. But as far as everything else, no, they treat us like a, any other rock band. I mean, from way in the back of the arena, you can't tell if it's girls or guys. Yeah. In you fact, just somebody even said that. Yeah, and then... Yeah. But you can't tell, but you do know, don't you? I mean, yeah. you know, it's fixed and it's not, it's not guys, but... Yeah. I mean, I there's probably people out there that hear Janet's voice, but maybe they can't tell. If they haven't heard of us or something, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. they might not know. And it's still blowing away a lot of people. They still can't... That's girls up there doing that. It's unbelievable. People are still surprised. That's good. So we thought we'd play those two just just to briefly talk about kind of the the how women are portrayed and talked about in the metal years, but also just putting in context, it's not like there'd never been any all girl bands before. There'd been Fanny, of course, there'd been the Runaways. There was girl school metal band in the UK. So, and they talk about all of those bands in the interview and about right. you know they say that girl school never really made it in the states at all. That there was a a ceiling that all of those bands hit. I mean, 
Penelope, do you do you remember meeting Vixen? And did you did you know did you hear Vixen? I mean, were they a group that meant anything? I mean, they had a like a number twenty six hit, I think, with Edge of a Broken Heart, but they didn't really make it. I mean, that's the sort of cruel irony, really, for the first gift. They didn't really make it. They still exist in some form, but were they a group that you were aware of in the in the context of the glam metal scene that we were talking about? Yes. You remember, did you see them play? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, it's, the awful truth is they weren't terribly good, I don't think. You know, pretty formulaic. Then why the fuck are we talking about them? <laughs> <laughs> just, I, I think partly because the just unbelievable misogyny and sexism of many of the male interviewees in Decline 2, that's sort of why... I thought it yeah, was worth I, I understand. I understand what you're saying, Barney. And the fact of the matter is it was really, really terrible sexist time, a really difficult time for women. I'm glad I was older than most of – well, the fact is all those guys, uh, and they even told me this, they wore makeup so that they could – not intimidate the young girls. They, they liked really, really young girls. Mm. Okay. And so I was out of the running, thank God. <laughs> but it was a time when, you know, an older, not that great looking chick like myself was, I felt kind of like ugly and old during that time because all those guys liked young you know they like strippers and um those uh sex pot kind of yes. bimbo chicks you yes. know yes. and you know the funny part most of them married those girls okay and now the girls are taking all their money <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah did your desire to to portray things in the way that we were talking about before without editorializing without judging did that come into conflict with what you just described when you saw these guys behaving shittily did you ever think fuck i want to do something to kind of address this or well, you just how am feel I like change it you know what i mean no, sure. like how am i going to change the world i can change my immediate environment yeah. to a degree i can't change those guys sexist attitudes on film you know sure. maybe no. maybe what you're saying jasper is perhaps i should have challenged them more in the interviews and yeah probably maybe i should have but i'll be honest with you that was a time when everybody bought in to the mm. they bought into yeah. the to, to that way of thinking everybody bought into it you just understood it as that you know yeah. Yeah. and it, it, it's like a crowd behavior you know mm. and yeah i guess maybe i am a bit guilty for not busting them out uh anymore but, you know, it is what it is, and I can't change it. You know, some of them are in jail now, so... No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have to talk briefly about Wayne's World, obviously the highest-grossing movie of your career. And it wouldn't have happened, I don't think, without the Metal Years. So Lorne Michaels and Mike Myers saw the Metal Years and were aware of your documenting of that, of that Metal period. I mean, is that is that is that kind of what happened? They saw it and came to you and said, "We, you know, we've got 
you know, obviously these Mike and Dana and stuff are on Saturday Night Live, and we want to make this this film, well, and we're thinking about you. That's kind of the dream scenario that led up to me getting the gig as hmm. a director on Wayne's World. When I say dream, I mean, uh, yeah, that would be the logical way to think about it. I had just done the metal years. Wayne and Garth thought they were metalheads. They weren't. They were a couple of posers. Okay. <laughs> Which made them funnier. Yeah. Of so, course. And I had known Lauren before. And yes, he did owe me a little bit for helping out with Albert and never giving me a gig on Saturday Night Live. Mm, so, mm, but I don't yeah. think he thinks that way. So we can rule that one out. Fact of the matter is, Paramount was up against the wall timing wise to hire a director fast because the boys had to shoot during the summer and get their ass back to New York so that they can write on Saturday Night Live. And in Lauren's life, the most important thing is Saturday Night Live. It ain't no stupid movie. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. So they had to get them back. And we shot up until the moment the guys had to get into a limo outside the soundstage and go to the airport. They went to the airport wearing those stupid fucking wigs. Okay. <laughs> wow. That's brilliant. <laughs> and the reason I got the job was because there is a God and he, <laughs> <laughs> he chose to have the timing work in my favor. Mm. I was up for another gig at the same time. I was going to do a documentary on Patton State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. And I was in that hospital when I went over to a wall phone and there was shit on the wall, literally there was somebody smeared shit on the wall next to the phone. And I picked up the phone and I called my agent and he said, you got the gig to do Wayne's world. And I'm like, Oh (laughs) dude, (laughs) I don't have to, I don't have to talk about this shit on the wall. You know, (laughs) I I was so pleased when it came up because I've been going to Los Angeles to work in 88, 1988 and watching Saturday Night Live, which wasn't available in England. And I Mm. just loved their spot on the show. I mean, it just made me roar with laughter. And then there was a movie about it. Oh, boy, it's fantastic. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, we did all love it. It it was all a matter. it, It was a matter of timing. And like I said, that's, that's, and luck, you know, and I really can't attribute it to anything else other than the perfect, wonderful chemistry of all of us coming together at the same time, you know, Mike and Dana and and Bonnie and Terry Turner, Lauren never came to the set. So fuck him. (laughs) Anyway, uh, (laughs) he came twice, maybe twice, two, three times. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, so it was all the right people came together at the same mm. time. Mm. And that's just magical. I have no other way to explain it, you know. And I never, ever want to take credit solely for the movie, ever. You know, it was all of us. Yeah. 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 When I interviewed you uh, the year after for Vogue, December 93, that interview came out. and uh, They titled the piece, See You at the Bank, Dude with an exclamation mark. And you did tell me the stress on that movie was unfathomable. I've worked with comedians my whole life, but let me tell you, throw a few of those psychos together in one room and you've got a snake pit. I barely made it through that one alive. I know it wasn't, I mean, for the joyous film that it is, it wasn't the happiest experience of your life, was it? 
I will say that that was brilliant dialogue on my part. <laughs> it's verbatim. It's absolutely it, verbatim. It wasn't. You didn't make that up, Barney. You're a better writer than me. No, ma'am. No? I did not. All right. Well, you know what? That was probably an interview that was done after I was denied the gig to direct Wayne's World 2. Two. Right. And I was really disheartened and disappointed and angry and hurt about that. You know, you make $200 million for the studio and then you can't do the part two. Sure. You know, but who remembers uh, part two, right? I never even saw it. Yeah. Uh, boo hoo. <laughs> <laughs> you, think, you think mama didn't laugh her ass off at that point? <laughs> <laughs> I think we know you did. Perpy, I just wanted to talk briefly about the week's featured writer who sort of fits into the overall theme of this episode. A guy called Mike Saunders, who became known as Metal Mike Saunders, and who straddles kind of punk and heavy metal. He may even have been the first writer to use the phrase uh, or the term heavy metal in 1971 in a review that we're featuring on the homepage of a little-known and long-forgotten band called Sir Lord Baltimore. Hilarious name. <laughs> that album, Kingdom Come, he reviewed for Cream, and he used those two words, heavy and metal, together. He's an amazing writer. He's like one of those great, like, Gonzo, like Lester Bangs-type writers. So we're, we're just featuring that review. We're featuring a piece he wrote for Phonograph Record in April 73 called the state of metal music today and we're also featuring um an interview with him from 78 and a piece about his band angry samoans who i saw when i was in la in 82 83 i was seeing all these bands and i saw angry samoans and i got to know mike a little bit did you ever do you ever remember that name angry samoans is that sound familiar to you do you remember them I absolutely remember them. I absolutely watched them perform. I absolutely remember asking Bob Biggs, are they really Samoan? (laughs) (laughs) I think when you saw them, you figured that. Have you ever heard, I'll tell you, there's another band that's equally as, well, sort of never recognized like Angry Samoans. They they were cool. But have you ever heard of a band called Pure Hell? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw... I'm, as I'm recalling, I saw Angry Samoans and Pure Hell either with each other or right at, you know, around the same time. Yeah. Brilliant. Come here, gringo. Get over here. You're not going out. That's a cat that Penelope's talking <laughs> to. My cat's name is gringo. I'm sorry. No, we, and, one, and another one of them is called Jasper. Jasper. And then we got Louie. King Louie. King Louie the turd, I call him. <laughs> I'm just going to read out a paragraph from Mike Saunders's review of the okay. Lord Baltimore album, May 71. So he goes, as much as I hate heavy music, cock rock, macho rock, or whatever the current name for it is, I have to admit to having every Blue Cheer album ever made. And then to have a having a peculiar liking for Led Zeppelin 2 because of its undeniable stupid rock punch. 
So just as I was once forced to ponder good bubble gum versus bad bubble gum because <laughs> of my, my irresponsible fondness for Indian giver, I'd be the first to admit that there's good heavy and bad heavy. Now, Mike is someone who was a real like evangelist for metal when it was when it was like just not cool. He 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 wrote screeds of stuff about metal bands and then formed this this punk rock band. And uh, he was briefly in a group called Vom with Richard Meltzer, another like Gonzo critic. Oh, I remember era. Richard. You Richard Meltzer, you'll remember. Yeah, and, yeah. He was at the LA Weekly, I think. Well, there's, so there's a great quote here from the this interview he gave in 78, where he says his fellow angry Samoan or future angry Samoan, Greg Turner, also a writer, came by one day and mentioned that Meltzer wanted to do a group. He was really serious about forming a band. So I said, okay. And the next time I plugged in the fuzz box to write some metallic riffs, I did a song tailored to Meltzer's voice. It was called Getting High with Stephen Stills. So that was one of Vom's classics. <laughs> I don't think they played many gigs. Anyway, I'm great. it's great that you remember Meltzer and the Samoans and all of that. Mm-hmm. Metal Mike, one of the great characters of rock criticism, is our featured writer of the week. Well, I think this whole idea of taking claim to a term, heavy metal, and saying somebody invented it, for me personally, falls into the same category as giving a geographic uh, credit to where a certain music started. Yeah, fair enough. I don't care who invented the term heavy metal. If Saunders thinks he did, then uh, have a happy life. <laughs> um, I think he. I think Burroughs may have used the phrase "heavy metal." Yes, in, William, in an William Burroughs. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Same as he did with Steely Dan. That was a phrase out of a Burroughs. Is a name novel. of a dildo. Okay. Oh, heavy metal. <laughs> no, Steely no, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the greatest dildo ever designed, the heavy the, metal. There's a lot of metal, <laughs> uh, steely. You know, I mean, there's a lot of metal going on in all of William Burroughs' quotes, <laughs> there is. isn't there? Perhaps we should move on from <laughs> yeah. dildos. I do. Don't just... you think? Don't you think we we have a, a lot of good laughs in this interview? I, I hope so. <laughs> we we certainly have had a great laugh, and I hope you. Yeah, have yeah. Too. We don't want any you no know, you know dry sort of scholarly examination of the music history. Actually, that is what we were hoping for from you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you didn't get it, baby. No, baby. We'll have to do another episode where where you're dry and scholarly. Well, I'd be dry and boring. Okay, we could do that. I did want to mention, uh, since we're talking about rock writers, I just want to mention the sort of rather shocking news that just came in literally a couple of days ago. Paul Rambali, who I read in The Enemy in the late 70s and was later the editor of The Face, died just a little over a week ago in Paris, where he'd lived for many years. And Mm. I was really, really sad to hear this news. I knew him a little and really liked him as a guy and just admired him so much as a writer and editor. So I do want to just mention that and pay tribute to him. I mean, Mark, you would have read Paul Rambali sure. in The Enemy, wouldn't you? You know, yeah, yeah, wrote about yeah, really yeah. interesting bands as well. You know, he yeah. didn't, 
you know, he had really great taste. And we also, of course, lost the, the great Annie Nightingale, who was a really important woman in British pop. Mark, do you remember hearing Annie Nightingale on Radio 1? Well, like, I, you know, curiously, not really. I, I was sort of, you know, my relationship with the radio was always sort of fairly vague at the best of times. Mm. The weird thing about, about her is a lot of my DJ friends knew her in her later incarnation as a right. pretty kind of banging, you know, house yeah. and techno sort of DJ. Like a club and DJ, she abso- was, yeah. A- absolutely. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. she, she, she they, they all loved her, you know. They said she was just a lovely person to work with, you know. Yeah. And, you know, she's, yeah, important pioneering stuff. She was the very first woman to DJ on Radio 1, and she was, she stayed there forever. I mean, she, her last show was just before Christmas. You know, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah yeah. 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 I remember her. Well, I don't know if you ever would have met Annie Nightingale, Penelope. I'm guessing not, probably. No, I haven't. I, I don't know what the fuck you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, funnily enough, the funny thing is, I because re- she did, she became like a co presenter of the Old Grey Whistle Test. Now, you will remember the Old Grey oh, Whistle Test. Oh, I remember test. that. Yeah. Because so, we used so, to send the 16 millimeter film to them. There you like go. The Midnight well, Special sort exactly. of thing. Exactly. So yeah. what I I remember, I don't think it's a false memory that she was flown to LA to report on kind of the whole sort of new wave like power pop thing that was happening around like the knack and the motels. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah, and I just have this image of her being like sort of tottering down sunset in high heels with like two or three members of these bands and they were like going into the whiskey or the Roxy or something. And I, I hope that's a, a true memory, but so she, she kind of did her kind of LA, LA bit there. Anyway, she's, you know, a, 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 just a, I, I know, a know, when, fixture what, what, on the scene. Wasn't yeah, she Mark here? One more kind of yeah. recent thing is, is she won an award from one of the dance magazines and about kind of eight years ago as Kana of the Year, which means that she basically liked her substances and her alcohol, <laughs> and she could she could she could do it with she could cane with the, with the best of them with, with, with the best of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, All right. Farewell, Annie. Now on two here's Anne Nightingale with this week's whistle test. Hello and welcome to Whistle Test. Lots of hard driving rock music tonight with a sprinkling of ska. Midnight Flyer featuring Maggie Bell, Trevor Rabin, Michael D. Barr, The Sound and Camel. At this point, Penelope, Mark and Jasper are just going to tell us about a couple of pieces that we've added to the Rockstar Pages library. If there's anything you hear that triggers some kind of memory or anecdote, just jump in and tell us about it. But Mark, over to you. Yeah, yeah, this is the first thing. This is from the, the week before last. was Erasure's Andy Bell to Sean Passenden and Select in 1994, talking about his fellow Erasure, Vince Clark. Just a, you know, for those who don't know that Andy Bell's a very out gay man and Erasure plays sort of what you'd call sort of like the sort of the gayer end of dance music. He says, he's a good catch, Vince, but you can't go around with false hopes, can you? I fancied him all along, really. He's very compact. He's cute. He's well-proportioned. He's, uh, what's the word? Respectful. He wouldn't do anybody any harm at all. Yeah, he knows I like him. He teases me. (laughs) I love the idea of the compact Vince Clark. Who, by the way, released a solo album just like about a month ago. Is that right? Yeah. Bloody hell.
going on this week? Well, it's part of the feature, actually, review panel up here. It's uh, an interview with Richard Harrington from the Washington Post in 19, 1981, in which you say, I hate to say this, I'll take money from anyone, from the scum of the earth if I have to. I've no pride because I have to make my films. I do think the studio system's a gigantic old dinosaur that needs to be totally restructured. They don't want to make good films, and they certainly don't want to make films that say anything on social mores or deal with social issues. They want films that are entertaining, where they can get their five bucks quick and let people escape. So that was you in 1981. Did I say that? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I'm yeah, sure I, you I, wouldn't I, say that now, would you, Penelope? You wouldn't say yes, anything would. like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Richard quoted you except, accurately. Uh, you know, except uh, actually there's a lot of futuristic predictions in that quote, if you ask me. Sure. You know, Paramount, Paramount may be bought by Warner Brothers right now. You know what I mean? They're all wow. just kind of yeah, yeah. melding together. Yes. You yeah. know? Gigantic globules. I did an interview with a random girl uh, for, I fucking forgot the, oh, audio visual something or other magazine. And she asked me a question. I says, well, you know what? Hollywood can blow me. And she said, <laughs> can I use that as the the headline? And I said, I don't care. And so <laughs> she used it. And then everybody, People Magazine picked it up. Hollywood can blow me. Well, you know, it's sort of like a relationship, like a boyfriend thing. Like, you know, if if he doesn't want me, then I don't want him. You know what I mean? So if the studio system and mainstream film financers don't want me, it's like I don't want them. You know, like, yeah. did I get fired or did I quit? Well, I quit, you know. Mm. So I feel better just saying Hollywood can blow me. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Mark, have you got what else ju- have you got? Ju- ju- Just one last thing, which is uh, Schoolie D being interviewed by Damon Wise Sounds in 1989. He says, it's not that I hate rock and roll. It's that I hate certain images of rock and ro- on rock and roll right now. Certain is this me are... talking? Is this me talking? No, no. This is not we, you we, anymore. We've gone beyond you, Penelope. We're now on... How can you do that? <laughs> it's, not all, it's not all about you, Penelope. Yeah. No, yes, is... it is. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is Philadelphia rapper Schoolie D. It's not oh, that I hate oh. rock and roll. It's that I hate certain images that are in rock and roll right now. Certain things are fucked up enough. Like people say we don't need certain things in rap. We don't need certain things in rock and roll, at which point the interviewer says, such as, like we don't need men wearing mascara and lipstick and looking more like a woman than a man. To me, that's not teaching anyone to be real. Oh, dear. On that charming note. A bit reactionary. That's my my lot. Jasper, what have you got? So Schoolie D was not a huge fan of the glam metal scene. No, no, no. Clearly not. (laughs) Well, may he rot. May he rot in drag queen hell. Ah! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. I've got two things to mention. First of which is Sylvia Patterson in the face, November two thousand. Sylvia. This is the headline. Sylvia says, "Bring me Nirvana or bring me death." At the drive-in, this month's saviors come from El Paso, just above the Mexican border, a real America hellhole. They have real big hair, for real, inscribed inside their souls, and detonate the airwaves with a sort of colossally intense punk metal speed rock shouty bloke intestinal meltdown the U.S. hardcore has absolute authority over eternally, which means they throw up pixies, say, where we seep Radiohead. It's just a great, <laughs> it's just a great piece. Since you mentioned Nirvana, it's just one thing I, I wanted to say when we were talking about the, the metal years and Wasp and all of that. I mean, what is so hilarious really about metal is, and you have talked about this, Bernard, in, in interviews, 
is that it's like they don't see what's coming, that grunge is coming over the, the horizon, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it's just about to wipe them all out. And they just are completely oblivious to what's around right. the corner. Well, reminds me of when I did Wayne's World. I was completely oblivious to the fact that that would never happen again. Okay. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. When you're at the top of your game, I think it's going to last you forever. You don't realize. And then the only place to go was down. You know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, hey, speaking yeah. of speaking of that, I wanted to mention, if you don't mind that I recently had a screening of a film I did 20 years ago, which never got released. It's called We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah, the Ozfest film. That's right. Yeah, I did it with Sharon and Ozzy, who've been friends for 40-some years. But uh, we did this uh, 1999 Ozfest documentary, and Sharon says she's going to release it sometime soon. So when she does, if she does... Hopefully she will. I'm getting a gun to put to her head shortly. Never put a gun to Sharon Osbourne's head. Yeah, she'll, she'll pull out <laughs> two of her own. You'll come out the worst. You'll come out the worst. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. No, I told her when I when I, when we started working together, I said, I thought I was the most badass bitch in the business. But once I met her, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. over. She can out-bitch anyone. Oh, Having yeah. said that, she, did, she took Mark and me for lunch at Morton's. It was brilliant. In, in LA. Okay. It, was one of, it was a great experience we had, being taken to lunch by Sharon Osbourne. Many moons ago. Okay go and she was very nice she didn't hold a gun to our heads she took us to more she took us to morton's and we were surrounded by sort of permatan studio execs and she was swearing like a trooper she, she I, was i I, yeah. I rolled i rolled a cigarette and she said oh my fucking husband smokes those and he gets <laughs> fucking tobacco in the bed and you can see all these guys blanching around us it's marvelous yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'd love to see that that was first film yeah so thanks for mentioning that we sold ourselves to rock and roll jasper what was the, the next thing you oh the second piece was just i was gonna welcome a new writer pat Pearson, oh, who yes. founded Yeah, Yeah, Yeah magazine, and our colleague William added this long, long, long interview that he did with David Bowie. It's like a 6,000 word piece Jeez. in Yeah, Yeah, Yeah on the 23rd of July 2003, and it's just, just really interesting. I mean, Pat is like over the moon to, to be interviewing David Bowie, so it's it's got a nice angle to it in that sense as well. And Pat says, in general, I think the 80s was tough for anyone who was a serious 70s artist slash singer-songwriter. Mm. And Bowie replies, I think the problem was there was a point where the industry realized it could make money out of rock music. And it was the first time the industry really started to button up and become corporate in a major way. And I think that affected all of us because we didn't know whether we should go with this or keep our independence and be kind of a little renegade. And I think that's how many lost our way in that. Yeah. But the industry was changing like crazy, and I think it did affect everything. Their focus was very different from what it had been in the 70s. The nurturing idea was out the window. That was the beginning of, let's see how he does with his first album and then drop him. It started right. in the 80s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. I mean, um, also, well, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to disagree with that. I think, <laughs> uh, That's your prerogative. Col- That's your prerogative <laughs> as the guest. Well, what about, you know, what about Colonel Sanders? You know what I mean? Uh, like, did he exploit? Elvis or what you know 
I mean, <laughs> no, no, to the exploitation. But uh, no, I think I think Bo is absolutely right that the the music industry stopped taking risks sometime in the eighties. Oh, that's what he meant. Yeah, that that's pretty much what he meant. You know. Yeah, I think it's about the corporatization of it, really. You know? Okay. Should we just make it clear that it was uh, Colonel Tom Parker and not the fried chicken dude? I was making a joke. <laughs> <laughs> God, I don't, don't, want, don't want to get sued here. Uh, no. Actually, one of, one of the sides <laughs> things that everyone I know who's interviewed David Bowie is saying he's one of the nicest, most intelligent people they've ever interviewed. It's always a pleasure. You know. Well, how nice that he gave this interview to this this little magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? That says yeah. so much about it. It's so typical of Bowie to, yeah. to be generous in that way. And Pat talks about exactly that, about how, you know, how he how he is very generous and how he kind of makes makes Pat feel at home immediately in the yeah. interview situation and, and, and doesn't kind of talk down to him or doesn't lecture him or doesn't any of that. So it's it's great. Beautiful. Good stuff. Is that it? That's it That's for me. It. That's wonderful. Well, gosh, we're drawing very near to the end of this episode. Thank you, uh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, baby Jesus. Thank you, baby Jesus. Uh, we, we, we will be back in a fortnight with a special episode dedicated to Tom Hibbert and the book that we have put together about and by the late, great Tom Hibbert, the funniest music writer ever. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you use, and do give us a glowing review if you can, because it really helps. Do also visit Rock's Back Pages, where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush. Check to see if your local library or academic institution subscribes to us. And if not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. For that is what we are. And on <laughs> that note, it remains for us all to thank you, the great Penelope Spheris, for making tough, for getting up so early to be with us today. It's been such a great pleasure and a hoot, as we say here, an absolute hoot speaking with you. I hope you've enjoyed it. I loved it. And actually, I want to apologize that I copped out the first time we were going to do an interview and you were such a gentleman about it and forgave me and even <laughs> invited me back, Barney. And I feel like I'm going to probably name my next child after you. <laughs> <laughs> no, just na name your next child after Jasper, i.e., the baby oh, yeah. Jesus, the oh, baby Jesus spheres. That's it. <laughs> anyway, Dear Lord. Dear you Lord. guys are, are great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank thanks, you very it's been much. Fantastic. And on that note, it's goodbye from me, Mark and Jasper, and goodbye from our wonderful guest, Penelope Spheris. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, y'all. You guys rock on now. That concludes episode 169 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Penelope Spheris. Visit her website at penelopespheris.com. Those to Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. I'm crazy and I'm